This is the Detection at Scale podcast, a new show designed to help security practitioners succeed at managing and responding to threats at a modern cloud scale. As the volume of data increases and the attack surface expands, it's never been more important to stay ahead of the curve. Each episode will feature interviews with leading security practitioners, thought leaders, and company founders who are building the next generation of security tools. I'm your host, Jack Naglieri, founder and CEO of Panther Labs. Now let's get into today's show. Hey, welcome back to another episode of the Detection at Scale podcast. Today I'm here with Jay Wolfgang Gerlich. He's an advisory CISO at Cisco Secure. Before that, he led IT and IT security in the healthcare and financial services fields and held VP positions at several consulting firms. He regularly advises his clients on the topics of security architecture and design, identity and access management, governance, security development life cycles, zero trust, security, and much more. Welcome to the show, Wolf. Hey, thank you for having me on. It's so good to be here. So good to meet you. So before we hit record, we were talking a little bit about how you met the founders of Duo. And I'd love to just learn a little bit more about your job at Cisco Secure. So I'm curious, like as an advisory CISO, like what is your main focus today? Yeah, so the main focus is, and this is such a good job. <laughs> I am so fortunate to be surrounded by some really smart people. You know, coming out of being a security officer, coming out of being the customer, you're always like, why didn't they understand what I wanted? Why didn't they build for the use case? Why didn't they do this? Why didn't they do that? And likewise, you get the marketing, you get the phone calls. And you're like, well, what are you doing? Don't don't tell me about the art of war. I've got a dozen emails telling me about the art of war and the latest breach. And uh, <laughs> it can get even the most cheery of CISOs. And cheery is, is like being the tallest of the seven dwarfs when you're a security officer. But the most cheery of CISOs, uh, quite cynical. So at Duo and my role, what I do is I you know work with the product teams, you know, as you mentioned, it's part of Cisco Secure and also Dual Umbrella and others. And I worked with some of the marketing teams. That's about half my job. Saying, so here's what the CISO cares about. Here's what's happening. Here's where the industry is going. Here's, you know, some big picture strategy items to think about. And then the other half of my job is going out and working with CISOs and advisory capacities to say, okay, what's the problem you're trying to solve? And what does that look like? And, and how can you tackle that? Right before this call, for example, I was working with a restaurant system just trying to figure out, hey, how do we get people in so they could work? And when they leave, how do we move their access? So a lot of great conversations about how to you know, employ technology to solve business problems. I think you brought up something already from the beginning that's quite interesting to me and just talking about this idea of CISOs tend to sometimes be on the defense when it comes to like vendors, right? Because they probably get just so much outreach, right? And that can lead to people just being somewhat cynical when they're approached by anybody, right? It's just a defense mechanism over time. So I think this is especially true in detection because if you think about like SIM vendors and we think about just SIMs in general, it's an acronym that can make people kind of just like shudder up. So I'm curious, like how do most CISOs in the market really perceive SIMs today and just the act of doing security monitoring as a practice? Yeah, it's really bread and butter. And the CISO market is is somewhat saturated. It's seen as being this very complex technology. We all need it, right? I want to know if someone is doing something on my network, but we all don't necessarily trust it because do I have good log sources? 
are people maintaining things, etc. So there's this uneasy feeling in the pit of so many of our stomachs. And so what do you do with that, right? Do you double down? Do you invest? Do you, do you staff it better? Flip side, do you outsource and partner with that? In a couple of different positions I've held over the years, I've, I've built out MSPs. And one of the first things we do is, let me help you with your SIM, because it is such a area of unease for so many security officers. That's really interesting. I never thought about the idea of not trusting the SIM as an idea, because at the end of the day, the SIM is the heart of the detection program. And if it fails in whatever way, that can lead to a lot of pain for the leadership, right? Because they're like, that's the first person who's going to really get thrown in front of the bus where it's like, well, what happened? Why did this happen? And they're like, well, the tool, the tool, or like the platform, or it just didn't work or didn't scale or whatever reason. But I've never made that connection before because typically as a vendor, it's viewed as like, oh, we don't trust the vendor. But you take, kind of take it a step back. You're like, well, the process itself has been kind of broken for a long time. So I want to dig a little bit further into that. So like, what is really the source of this trust? I mean, you mentioned not having good log sources, et cetera, but like, where do you think, what do you think had really caused that trust to be lost over time? I think part of it is the vision. So if you go way back, there's a lot of hype around SIM. If I've got all my logs, heck, if I want to be really aggressive, if I've got all my packets, I will know everything that's happening in my network. And I, I think back to this time and we had this great monitoring program. I mean, I Windows monitoring logged, turned all the way up. Every time a process ran, I was capturing it. I had full packet capture across my, my core switching. I had, you know, data analysis going across that. And I was running that through uh, Snort and any anything that happened, I thought I was covered. And I had an intern. And I want to say that again. I had an intern. And I said, this is what I'm doing for the project. See if you can like find any holes in this. And we're at week five of a six-week internship. He's like, uh, can I schedule some time in your calendar? Sure, absolutely. After lunch, what so much you got? So he sits down and he is on his computer. He's on our course switch and he's got some servers to play with. And all of a sudden he's like, all right, I'm running some code on your server and I've got a, a backdoor on your server. And I'm like, there's no way, there's no way. And he's like, yeah, yeah. And I said, all right, no problem. I've got it in my packet capture logs. Nope, he had fragmented all his packets. All right, no problem. I've got it in my Windows logs. It captures every process. No, he had realized that if you hook a process, that that secondary sub-process at the time, I don't know if this is still the case, but at the time that was not logged. So, so this is a, a tremendous amount of time and effort I put into this control, a tremendous amount of, confidence I had in this control. And in five weeks, an intern had knocked a huge hole in it. Incidentally, that's the last time I led an intern on my production network because I learned a very valuable lesson. But I think you talk to any security officer or any person in leadership, and they're going to have stories of, I thought someone would save me. And then when I went to rely on it, it didn't. I like to talk about trust all the time. And part of trust is reliability, obviously. So a thing will do what it says repeatedly that the consistency reliability part is super, super important. So it's really interesting. I mean, that's a great story to really paint the picture of saying that we had a platform and if we had an intern come in and, and kind of hack around and evade it and it didn't flag the thing we thought it would flag. So I guess the, the, the broad question without 
injecting any bias because this has been the field I've worked in for the last 10 years. Like, how do you think this gets better from, from a vendor really working and partnering with the CISOs and like, really, how do we build this trust back up in the, in the tool? I think the, the growing field of attack simulation may offer a path. That's one thing that comes to mind. When I was coming out of that situation and, and doing MSPs, I started doing security exercises and control validation, right? I think if I break into this door that the police are going to be alerted and they're going to swarm in 15 minutes. So when I go to break in the door, what really happens? I think partnering, you know, the control validation, uh, attack simulation, security exercises, whatever particular way you want to slice that with the logging to make sure that the data is actually there, it's actionable and making sure that people are actually following up on it is a, is a one way that can rebuild that trust. How do you think about the investigative side versus the detection side, just broadly with SIMs? Like what is a good SIM in terms of like being able to answer those questions and things like that? Yeah, a lot of it is providing good context and being very use case driven. I think uh, the industry has gotten a bit better, a bit better. But I remember back in the day, you know, uh, I'd be like, all right, what's your use case? Our use case is we are going to let you know when this Linux syslog alert happens or when this Windows event ID occurs. Like, okay, that's great. Thank you. But what does that mean? What means that on Linux, we've logged something. (laughs) Okay, Awesome, but how how do I respond to that? And I think as seams have evolved and matured, good reporting out of them really provides much more context, right? We saw this, that, and the other happen, and therefore this is indicative of potentially the start of a ransomware attack or potentially someone had done a brute force and got in and have now moved a couple of steps down. So from an investigative perspective, it's really connecting those dots, it's so easy, especially with the volume of, of logs, especially with the, you know, the frequency of alerts to really get buried under all that noise. And that's a really interesting segue into just talking about the evolution into cloud and scale and these things, right? If we think back 10 years ago, we were just operating behind a firewall. Maybe we had a hundred systems or so. And now in the zero trust world where, you know, laptops and in a, very distributed workforce. We have like hundreds of thousands of systems to maintain that's growing exponentially. So I guess the question I have is like, how do you think the detection personas have changed with the movement to cloud? Isn't that funny that a hundred systems behind a, a couple firewalls, you're like, those are the good old days. We churned our own butter. Uh, it was just a glorious time. You know, the, the bespoke same system. Now in, in today, when you think about cloud, uh, I had another wrinkle that I'm sure you know about, but as you're talking, I, I was thinking as well, is even if you have 100 systems, back then you had 100 systems that persisted for three years. You racked, you stacked, you maintained them. Now you may have 100 systems, even if you're that small, that persist for three months, three weeks, as things get spun up and spun down and recreated. And as we've shifted, not only to cloud scale, but also to DevOps velocity. So it's really made it very difficult 
to ensure we've got good logs, to ensure we've got good traceability. The amount of information has gone up exponentially, which is why, again, I say that, you know, good reporting has to do a lot of that crunch. You can build a lot of that context on the fly. That makes a lot of sense. In terms of the detection challenge, just going from zero to one, like how do you think in the modern day in 2021, this evolved again with like the pandemic and forcing remote work? And like, how do you think that affected the overall detection landscape and the challenge of doing detection? Yeah. So not only now are we dealing with a number of different virtual ephemeral machines that uh, we need to somehow know where they're at and that need to somehow ensure that they're logging our client machines, which again, I mentioned earlier, right back in the good old days, I get full packet capture and I could run all that network traffic through my, uh, my uh, rack of equipment to make sure that nothing got in or out. But with the pandemic, most of us are, are working from home or working from anywhere. I gave up, I actually gave up my office two months ago, which is about, depending on when you release this, is about 16 months into the pandemic. Because I kept telling myself, I'm going to go back. I'm going to go back soon. I'm going to go. And then finally, I'm like, no, I'm not going to go back. I need my stickers and my toys off my desk. So <laughs> most of us are working from remote. So what that means is we've had to shift the detective controls away from the network, detective controls away from that single point of presence out to the endpoint with things like EDR and you know, you know, local monitoring and everything, which makes it even more difficult, right? So a question for you is, how are those logs getting back to any sort of seam? Are they? Or is it simply the EDR tool reporting up? Well, the challenge becomes now you have to pull them from 100 places. Yeah. In the world where everything was behind the firewall, seemingly less complicated because you feed everything to a syslog server, it goes into whatever SIM or logging tool you're using and you kind of have that visibility. And, you know, that was the good old days, right? Syslog aggregation. That meant much more than a single server. It meant everything behind the firewall goes through this. So now the challenge becomes how do we interface with those APIs? And also how do we deal with the variance in how those vendors decide to deal with audit logging? Because everyone's different. Right. Oddflare in, in the CDNs and stuff that they'll push to S3 maybe. But if you think about like G Suite and Google Workspaces, as they renamed it, it's all API driven. So you have to deal with all these different APIs. They all speak different languages. It's just, that's the long tail challenge. The baseline challenge is scale, right? Because the volumes have gone up for so long and we're operating in the, in the realm of terabytes per day now, and you just have to, you can collect things from EDR, but that's telling part of the story, right? Like you want to know once they got into the laptop, then what did they do? Right. And where's all the data today? It's in the cloud. So now you have to go out and be like, oh, well, they got into my G Suite. Oh, and then they went to Asana. Oh, and then they actually realized uh, they had Okta access. So then they pivoted into like QuickBooks and then they like found a contract and then they found this. And then, you know, they're just like this web sort of grows like unbounded, especially with IT. I mean, this is really related to IT security as well too, right? Because with the shift to remote work, it really became an emphasis on IT security. And Duo plays a, a large role in that too, right? Like the two-factor, right? That, that's a huge way to prevent attacks. And that's such a, it's a very easy control to implement that has such a high return on investment. So from a detection perspective, again, it's just 
like us as the sim vendor, like we have to go out and interface with everything. And we have to really give the tools in order to be able to do the detection. And then like you're saying, provide context instead of just saying, oh, well, someone logged in. It's like, well, what does that login mean? Right. And like the democratization of that information is becoming increasingly more important, especially as we start to talk to analysts, right? Because engineers can connect the dots and be like, oh, well, I understand if someone logged into this thing, this means that, right? And then they know where to look next, but not everyone has that intuition. So it's our job as, as practitioners and as a vendor to be like, okay, this is what it actually means. And then giving them the tool and the platform to actually get the data and go from zero to one. But it's a, it's a really hard problem. Yeah, it, it is, especially the scale, the scope, but also the speed. And by speed, I mean, I'm imagining those APIs are not incredibly static. So that means maintaining those connectors, rebuilding those connectors. You know, every time there's a new version, which can be monthly or even, you know, more frequently than that, it's a lot of work. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Actually, I saw in your notes, you worked on an open source sim project. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, I think everyone should at least once in their life make a terrible decision <laughs> because that, that makes everything uh, so much easier. And I think when you're, especially when you're in your 20s, you hear a vendor give you a pitch and you sit there and go, I could build that. That just seems like a few scripts. How hard can that be? And so that was exactly where I was at. It was Q1 Labs. Q1 Labs showed me their, their new Shiny pre-IBM acquisition. And I thought to myself, that, you know, that's just simply some data warehousing. I could just pull some data in, do some normalization. Ooh, I could even do some modeling. And I was really heavily involved at the time with the BI stack. So I thought, oh, it's just similar to business intelligence. And then I took this really innocent, sweet little SQL server that was you know, no more than a couple of days old. And I thought, you know, I'll just send all my network traffic to a table in that <laughs> and learn very quickly that no, these are not at all the same thing. So for, for about three, four years, I did a lot on this open source project, again, based on .NET, backended to SQL, wanted to use the BI stack. And learn so much about maintaining the connectors and uh, doing the data normalization and how easy it is to bury any sort of relational database under what was then seemed like a lot of data. But today is probably, you know, a small fraction amount of the data that enterprises have. It was a good time. It was a really good time. And it's very representative of the complexity of that problem. And even in, in the cloud world where you're like, cool, we have auto scaling. If you still tried that today, that MySQL database is not going to last you very long, even with, again, cloud-backed services. And it's because security teams need speed, right? Speed is a huge, hugely important thing, especially in an incident. And it is a very complex data infrastructure and engineering problem. And that's one of like six things that it is, right? Like think about going zero to one in a SIM. I need all of my logs from everywhere. Okay, sure. That's going to be hard. Sure. Uh, and they're on all, all different formats. So now I have to build an ETL pipeline. I have to partner with all of my teams to build a syslog pipeline. I need to get access to all the, all the things. And then now I need to, now that I have the access, I need to pull all of it somewhere. And oh, by the way, I need to monitor when it breaks. 
And oh, I need to manage uh, I need to manage all the schemas as they change. And oh, it needs to go to a data warehouse. Oh, and I have to manage the scale of the data warehouse. It's like this is literally scratching the surface of the problem. Now I need to do detection. Now I need to do analysis. Now I need a tool where I can do case management. Now I need to alert my team. Now I need to do automated response. So it's like you can quickly understand like the growing complexity of this issue. And it's literally the reason that we're a team of almost 100 people working on this. And it's still not enough people. Like I still need more people. It's like, I want to go double the company, you know? And it's because this is such a complicated problem to solve. And to really do it right, you just need an immense amount of focus and understanding about like what these goals are that we're trying to get to. We're trying to get to this from this very technical problem to a very user-friendly solution. And the path to get there is very non-trivial. However, if we're able to crack that, then we've done a really great service for security. And like, that's really the goal. So not to get too deep into like, into that problem, I think you inspired another question when you were explaining this. And the basic gist that I got from you is like, be very careful about what you take on as an engineer or really as a security team when it comes to like building things yourself. So my question for you is, how do you typically advise CISOs on making a build versus buy decision when it comes to security tooling? Yeah, I had a, a conversation this week where they're like, you know, we we love the idea of SASE, which is what Secure Access Service Edge. But one of our engineering teams said, you know, we could probably build this part of it ourselves. We've got the time, the technology, we're in the cloud, we can scale it out, it'll be a local instance. <laughs> I started to twitch a little bit because it always seems so much easier to just build it yourself until you actually build it yourself. Um, now, I will say, I, I do think it's important as a professional to build tooling so you can understand a little bit what's going on underneath the hood. I think I've been a lot uh, lot more intuitive around seeing and those types of challenges for scaling it up since I, I launched that project. But back to your your question about, okay, that's great for the professional, but what about the team? What about the organization? A lot of the conversations I have go something like this. First off, determine if it's a commodity or if it's truly a value. If it's truly a value, it probably makes sense to, to consider building. But if it's a commodity, why are you spending your time there? Like no one should be building an AV right now. That doesn't make any sense. Secondly, whatever your team is telling you it's going to take, multiply that by 10. <laughs> Their estimates are very optimistic. Even when you multiply it by 10, it's probably not going to still fall in. It might even be more than that because it's always more complicated than we think. And then thirdly, it's not the building that gets you. I mean, anyone who's in DevOps today knows this. It's not necessarily hard to build something cool and that's a pilot. It's hard to scale it out and it's the maintenance, the maintenance of the solution that really buries you. So if it is truly, you know, not commodity, but competitive, something that can build, you know, a great core competency for your team, if it's truly something that you've got the people for, again, taking their estimate, multiplying it up, and if it's truly something you want to support over the longer term, maybe make some sense. And even if it doesn't, take some good lessons learned because you can build a good business case as to why you need to invest in tools after doing that. That's, by the way, exactly what happened. I built my seam. And uh, I think it was about two years later that uh, I went to my board and was like, hey, so about Q1 Labs, I, we actually went back and by that time, IBM had bought them and uh, invested in a full stack because of this exact problem. I made similar 
moves to in my past. I mean, we built our own version at Airbnb, which we open sourced though. And, you know, there, there was a lot of good that came out of that. And, um, that project did get a lot of attention and contributors and it was a really fun experience. And it had the positives that you mentioned, which is, you know, you learn what's happening under the hood. And even if you're using another vendor, that knowledge is really important, but it's kind of the best of both worlds where you don't have to do the maintenance and the scale. And I agree. Those are the things that get you, especially when you're trying to run an incident. Like the last thing you want is like, oh, we're running an incident. And oh my God, like we just ran a query and just completely killed our SIM. And now we're, we're even more blind. And like the thing I say a lot is me going from a practitioner to a founder. My whole thing is I want security teams to focus on security and not the surrounding operations and surrounding development required with the tools involved. Right. It's such a unnecessary subset of the problems that they have to solve. And security in itself is hard enough. And it's, there's so much gray area in security, especially in detection. You could just be hunting things forever. Or the worst case scenario, someone tells you you got breached. And you never want either of those things to happen, right? You want to be able to have high confidence, high certainty that things are, are going well or not going well. And that's seemingly really difficult sometimes to find, especially in incident response. But I guess broadly, the thought I had and what I'm curious about from you is how would you like to see detection and response really evolve going forward? Well, there's a couple things. One on the tooling side, two on the team side. On the tooling side, I think we need tools that make our practitioners better. And I don't necessarily mean directly like, oh, I'm, I'm a little bit better because I have this UI or this interface. There's a designer named Enzo Mari. Unfortunately, he, he passed away due to COVID in the beginning of last year, but he's an Italian designer. And many decades ago, he came out with this series of furniture designs. So you could get his furniture designs and you could build them. And his whole idea was he wanted to create designs where in building them, you taught yourself basic carpentry and, and master the craft and you know had a good time. So compare that to like Ikea furniture. Not going to knock Ikea furniture. I'm sure I got some in the house. We all have our own Ikea furniture. But you don't leave the Ikea furniture assembly process thinking, wow, I've now mastered the ability to you know, cut a new joint or do something different, right? You, you leave that experience going, I hope my wife will still talk to me after passing me the tools, right? It's one of those things. In much the same way, a lot of our security tools today can get the job done, but in doing the job, they don't leave the practitioner in a better state. And so I would love to see seams and detection response tools where in doing the task, you're actually making better practitioners. You're upskilling the practitioners as well as equipping them to be successful. And then on the team side, so you mentioned the tool side, are those one and the same or do you see teams changing as well? Yeah, on, on the team side, you know... We've we've along had the separation between the red team and the blue team, between the people who tested the defenses and the people who do the operations. So many of the breaches that I've been involved with, from doing investigation to you know being the shoulder that the CISO cries on when things aren't working, have been the result of we had X in place. And we thought it was working. This gets back to the trust conversation I was having earlier. Good example. I was working with um, a very large manufacturer. They were investigating a breach. 
I was brought in, I'm, I'm not a forensics guy, I'm a security leadership guy. I was brought in to work with the leadership and figure out what the messaging should be and everything. And they couldn't figure out, I think the attack stopped. It stopped for like X amount of period. Maybe they went away. I'm like, stop, that doesn't make sense. Like, yeah, I think it, I think it stopped. That's what our forensics people kept telling us. Like that doesn't, there's something missing here. And I remembered back to building the sim myself. I remembered what happened when data went way up and you start dropping things on us. What was your load at that point in time? And sure enough, they had had a spike. And because they had the spike, it dropped a whole bunch of logs. It just did not ingest. And so you had this blank period for, I think it was five, six hours, where we have no idea what they did. And how do you investigate that? And that's from load. Now you take other examples of, oh, I thought we had all our domain controllers in the monitoring instance. Well, we did. When we built it, but then we built some new domain controllers and we retired the old ones and we didn't move the logging and suddenly you're missing a whole bunch of auth events. All right, go ahead and investigate that. <laughs> you know, there's the, the problem is, is that there's a underlying assumption with many socks that what they're seeing on the screen is reality. And I think we need more testing and more probing of what they're seeing and what we think they should be seeing to make sure that the tools are really accurately reporting everything's working as appropriately and that people are trained and know what to do. That was great. So this has been an awesome conversation and feeling super, super inspired right now. So I really appreciate that. Um, the question I always wrap up with at the end is to succeed with building effective detection programs at scale in the future, what are three pieces of actionable advice you'd give to security teams or leaders who are listening in? So, you know, we've hit on number one, but the top thing in my head multiple times we need to be able to trust your tools. So check your tools and make sure they're actually working. The second thing is when we think about the monitoring and the response and whatnot, it can't just be, oh, if something happens, we'll figure it out. We need to have well-defined use cases for what is going to be coming out of these tools and how we're going to respond. Those use cases need to be documented. They need to be automated. They need to be fully supported by the tools. And, and they need to be exercised. So I need to practice these things so that when it happens, when it's game day, I'm not picking up the ball for the first time going, okay, I remember I'm supposed to go down the court or is it the field? I don't know. <laughs> you know it's just, so that we know what to do. So first off, have trustworthy tools. Secondly, have well-defined use cases that can be executed on. And thirdly is really to your point about change, build these programs with an eye towards, towards change. Now, no one really knew that, uh, you know, in March of 2020, our whole lives were about to change. But there's some organizations who had built their monitoring capabilities to be very, very flexible. And when that happened, they went, oh, okay, we just moved this around and now we're good. And there's other organizations that had a very brittle structure where everything was highly reliant on location. It was highly reliant on technology that could not adapt. So we never know what's coming. So we have to build our capabilities and thereby you know, architect our tools and, and leverage vendors that are good at this to be incredibly flexible. Totally, totally agreed with all of that. Thank you so much. That was a great answer. Great way to end the show today. Wolf, I really appreciate the time. Hey, Jack, thank you so much for having me on. I appreciate it. 
Thank you for listening to the Detection at Scale podcast brought to you by Panther Labs. For access to the latest episodes, please visit our website at www.runpanther.io forward slash podcast. And for those interested in running Panther, head to our website, runpanther.io to sign up for a free trial. You'll get a dedicated instance with the ability to analyze your security logs in real time at any scale powered by detections as code and sending into a very robust security data lake. Our goal is to make detection and response easy, scalable, and fast for you, the practitioner. Thanks. See you again next time.